when uh, my oldest son, when he was a little, little bitty baby, um, he had this habit where he would stare at his hand like this. He would do this all the time, both hands. And we were first-time parents, and so we thought it was cute, and we didn't think anything of it. And we were like, oh, he looks at his hand, and we made fun of him at night. We're like, oh, you know, I'm being my, you know. But then it wasn't until after about a, you know, after a while, about a year or so, when we thought, maybe he can't see. <laughs> and so we said, we need to go to the optometrist. So we go to the optometrist, and we said, hey, look, he's like staring at his hand all the time, like puts it right up to his face. What's going on here? They did an eye test. The optometrist said, yes, your son is, he's, he needs some glasses. Bad. Pronto. Now, so we said, okay, great. How much are those going to cost? Like 20, 30 bucks? They're like, <laughs> you know, no. And we're like, oh, that's how much they cost. glasses cost. Well, so uh, they, we put in the prescription. We come home. We wait a couple of weeks. The optometrist calls us and says, hey, your prescription's ready. Your son's prescription's ready. And uh, come up, bring him up to the office and we'll get, we'll get him fitted in his new glasses. So we bring our son. He's about one year old at the time. And we bring him into the room as he's, we're carrying him in. He's staring at his hands. And uh, we sit him down in the chair. The optometrist brings out the glasses, takes them out of the case. It was those little Miraflex plastic ones that wrap around your head. And I put them on his eyes, and this big grin comes across his face. I'll give you a picture of him with his glasses. Doesn't he look awesome? And he had this big smile on his face, and he was like, I can see. And he had this incredible joy on his face because he could see maybe for the first time. And we're like, man, like it's it was a special moment for him because his new sight gave him joy and gave him something to be excited about. And we're studying the letter to the Ephesians right now. And this is our second week studying this letter. And Paul writes this letter to a church in Ephesus. And we're in our text today, starting in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. And, and he tells them how he prays for them. He says, I pray that you would have spiritual sight. I pray that you wouldn't be blind to the things of God. I pray that you would see clearly who Jesus is. Not dimly, but I pray that you would see in high definition who Jesus is. And think of all the things he could pray for them. I mean, I think of all the things I could pray for our church. I could pray that God would give us a facility pray that God, you know, we could pray for our kids' ministry. We could pray all sorts of things for our church. But I think Paul was on to something when he recognized that the number one thing, most important thing we can pray for one another is this, that we would see more of Jesus and that we would see him clearly for who he is. And this is the prayer I've been praying for our church all week. If you were joined us in midweek prayer on Wednesday morning, we prayed this passage because we need to see Jesus. If there's anything that is going to lift our church out of this pandemic uh, and into a new season that God has for us, it's that we would see Christ. So let's look in Ephesians chapter 1. This is Paul's prayer for, the, for his friends. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers. And he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, 
What are, the glory, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I love that prayer because Paul prays, let's read again, verse 17. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, what a name, the Father of glory. What's he asking the Father of glory? He's saying, he's saying I'm praying that you would give these Christians the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul is essentially praying, I'm praying that you would have the eyes of your heart open so that you could see Jesus. I'm praying that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened. You know, there are things that we see with our eyes, right? And there are things that we see with our hearts. You know, some of us, we see just fine with our eyes, don't we? We see all the problems in the world. We all see, we see the obstacles that are standing in our way. We see the struggles in our life. We see the injustices that are all around us. We see all the rejections we face. We see all the flaws in others. We see all the weaknesses and the shortcomings in ourselves. And we can, we see all these things and we can call seeing them discernment. We can call it being real. We can call it, hey, I just call it like I see it. Great. You can call it whatever you want, but if all you can see is what you can see, you will likely become a cynical, hopeless, and numb person if you can only see with your eyes. Because with our eyes, we can see all the problems of the world. But we need to see not only with our eyes, but we need to see with our hearts. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What do you want to see? You want to see all the problems? Do you want to see the news cycle? Do you want to see the frustrations and the rejections and the suffering? Or do you want to see God? What we need more than anything else in the world is not what our eyes can see, but rather what we can see with our hearts. And what our hearts need to see more of is Christ Jesus. And Paul says two things enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus for who he is. He says the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of knowledge. What is the spirit of wisdom? The spirit of wisdom is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives wisdom. Now, some of us need to hear this. The Holy Spirit's primary function, the primary job of the Holy Spirit is not to make white people feel uncomfortable in worship services. You know what I mean? Presbyterians <laughs> feel weird. Oh, that was people lifting their hands, people shouting. The job of the Holy Spirit is not to make people feel weird in a worship service. The job of the Holy Spirit is is to open our eyes to see who Jesus is. The job of the Holy Spirit is to shine a spotlight on Jesus so that we can see him clearly. Holy Spirit's like, he's the humble one. He's, he di diverts attention to himself, to Jesus. That's the job of the Spirit. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of, the, of, the Son of God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, 
your intellect did not reveal that to you. Your volunteering did not reveal that to you. Your, you know, your worst, the, not, what revealed that to you was the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of what Paul prays, I pray that God would give you the Spirit of wisdom, and he says that you would have the revelation of knowledge. What is that? In the Scriptures, when it talks about revelation, it's talking about Christ. And it's talking about how we know Christ and how we know what Christ said and how we know what Christ did and how we know what Christ promised. And how do we know that? Through the Scriptures. The revelation that we have from God to teach us who Jesus is, is the Scriptures. So what happens is the Holy Spirit takes what we read, we, we open the Bible, we read about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit takes that from our head, knowledge, and pulls it into our heart. The Holy Spirit tells us and shows us who Jesus is. So revelation of the knowledge, we, we gain knowledge through reading the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit takes that knowledge and, and pours gasoline on it, and it becomes fire into our souls. And here's the truth. Some of you, and I don't say this judgmentally, I say this with grace and mercy. Some of you are bored with God right now. Some of you are just, you're just bored with God. And you say, what is going to wake me up? The thing that's going to wake you up from your spiritual sleep is for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you again and again the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, what He has done, and what He has promised as revealed in the Bible. And so I want to stop right here, and I'm going to say a prayer for us, because what I'm, what I'm going to do the rest of this sermon is I'm just going to read the Scriptures, a lot of Scripture. And my hope is not that I can convince you of Jesus' glory. My prayer is that as I read the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit will then take the Word of God and reveal Jesus to you. So let's pray. God, will you give us the spirit of wisdom and a revelation of the knowledge of Christ? Will you open our eyes and wake us up from our boredom, from our sleep, from our blindness, so that we can see Jesus for who he is? So who is Jesus and what does the Bible say about Jesus? Amen, by the way. You can open your eyes. Who is Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus? What do the eyes of your heart see when you think about Jesus? Well, John chapter 1, verse 1, says that in the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Colossians chapter 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Hebrews 1.3 says that He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You say, I want to know what God is like. Jesus is the exact imprint 
the exact representation of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, look at who Jesus is. The Bible says that Jesus was there in the very beginning. He was there when the world was created. He created all things, and in Him all things hold together. And when humanity was deceived by the serpent and we rebelled against God, God made a promise in that moment that He would send a son who would crush the serpent's head once and for all. You see, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus the new Adam. In the book of Exodus, the people of God were suffering as slaves in Egypt, but they were saved by the blood of the Passover lamb painted over the doorposts. And when the angel of death came over them, all who were under the blood of the lamb were saved. And 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Jesus is our Passover lamb and that if we take cover in him under his blood, death will pass over us and we will have life. When God delivered his people out of slavery, he provided for them in the wilderness everything they needed, bread from heaven, water from the rock, everything they needed to survive the harshness of life. And isn't life harsh sometimes? God provided for them. This is why Jesus, with all, the, all authority, could stand up in the Gospels and say, I am the bread of life. Everything you need is found in me. This is why Jesus could stand up and say, I am the living water. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel, they're attacked by fiery serpents. But God told Moses as the people were dying, God told Moses to make a bronze serpent on a pole and lift it up. And the scriptures say that all of those who looked up on that bronze serpent and set their eyes on that bronze serpent, that they were healed. And in John 3, Jesus explains what was going on there. He tells Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, he would be lifted up on the cross. And whoever would lift their eyes and see Jesus... High and lifted up. We just sang it. We would be healed. We would live and not die. In the Old Testament times, priests played the role of mediating between God and people. The high priest was the only one who could enter the most holy place in God's presence. But the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest and he alone mediates between us and God. And through Jesus, we can now enter into God's presence knowing that we will be accepted. The prophet spoke of a coming Messiah who would save us from our sin and give us new life. When Isaiah said that the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, who was he speaking of? He was speaking of Jesus. And when Isaiah said that the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, he was speaking of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, the prophet talks about a suffering servant. He says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, Christ is all over the pages of the Old Testament. Every page speaks of his name, but he's in the New Testament too, isn't he? In the New Testament, we see Jesus put on human flesh and come to us. Because we, were no long, we, we weren't seeking Him. He sought us. Philippians 2 says, Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He gave everything up 
He gave it all up. He exchanged the adulation of heavenly creatures for the derision of men. He traded the praise of angels for the curse of people. He left the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and he became a child born to a virgin and placed in a manger surrounded by animals because there was no room in the inn. And in his life, He gives sight to the blind. He cleanses lepers of their spots. He tells paralytics to stand up. He heals withered hands. He heals barren wounds. He makes the deaf hear, and he makes the mute sing. He casts out demons and evil spirits. He walks on water. He turns water into wine. He feeds the multitude. He calms the storm, and he raises the dead. He eats with sinners. He calls prostitutes and tax collectors to be his friends. He stands with the oppressed. He called the Pharisees to repent. He called the rich to sell everything they have for the sake of the poor. He says, if you are weary and heavy laden and burdened today, come to him and you will find rest. If you are anxious and depressed and worried today, he says, seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. He taught us how to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He taught us how to lay down our lives for the sake of others. And he taught us how to not just have our our actions transformed, but to have our hearts transformed. He was tempted greater than any of us have ever experienced, yet he never sinned. He was born in the middle of nowhere in a place people thought nothing of, the parents who people whispered rumors about. And he lived his adult life with no place to lay his head. He's been poor, he's been betrayed, he's been insulted, he's been lied about, he's been unjustly accused. So whatever struggles you have faced in your life, you can be assured from Hebrews chapter 4 that you have a great high priest who can sympathize with your every weakness and your every struggle. 2 Corinthians 8 says, Even though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he might become rich. He took the place of a man named Barabbas who was sentenced to death on a cross. You know, Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer. And according to the law, he deserved the death that was coming to him. But Jesus willingly took his place and he willingly takes yours. Pilate couldn't find any fault in Jesus, but he sentenced him to death nonetheless. And Jesus was then stripped naked. He was beaten with lashes. He had a crown of thorns placed on his head. He was paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. People spit on him. They mocked him. They insulted him. And they gambled for his possessions. His hands and his feet were nailed to a wooden cross. But as he was being executed, he prayed for his very executioners. Luke 23, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And as he was dying in pain, he wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of others. He called out to his friend, John, take care of my mom. He told the thief dying next to him that he would meet him in paradise later that day. And when he breathed his final breath and committed his spirit to his Father in heaven, the Bible says the earth shook and the sun went dark and the Roman centurion standing right, standing right next to Jesus as it happened was right when he said in Luke chapter 23, surely this man was the Son of God. His body was placed in a borrowed tomb and he descended to the depths. But three days later, His heart began to beat, his lungs began to expand, and his eyes opened. He sat up, folded his grave clothes, and kicked open his tombstone. And he appeared 
before three women at the tomb, Mary, Mary, and Salome. He appeared to Peter and John and Thomas and the rest of the disciples, and he gave them a mission to take the good news of his resurrection to the world. And he then ascended before their very eyes to the right hand of God the Father. And now he is pouring out his spirit on his disciples, and he has given us power and purpose. And right now the Bible says that he is advocating and interceding for you right this very second. Jesus himself is sitting right this moment at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for you right now. And he's advocating for you right now. The book of Revelation calls him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And one day he will come again to claim his bride, the church. But this time he won't come as a meager child. He will come with a sword in his mouth and fire in his eyes. And he will cast the enemy into the darkness and he will put an end to sin and death once and for all. And he will bring heaven down to earth. He will clothe his people in robes of righteousness. And we will surround his throne, fall on our faces, and we will cast every trophy and every title and every accolade we have ever achieved at his feet. And we will sing with every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Revelation chapter 4. And, we will, and he will reign forever for all eternity and we will join him as co-heirs in his kingdom because everything that is his is ours. Who is Jesus? Jesus is who he said he was. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. He's the light of the world. He's the door through which we are saved. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way and the truth. He is the vine and he says that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. I love the words of the great preacher and orator, Gardner C. Taylor, who pastored for many, many years in Bed-Stuy. He said, how can I speak about the glory and grandness of my Savior? He was born contrary to the laws of birth, but he died triumphant over the laws of death. He was born in poverty, but wise men brought their riches and laid them at his feet. He was cradled in, his, in another's crib. He sailed on another's boat, rode on another's animal, supped in another's upper room, was laid in another's tomb. But to him belonged the unsearchable riches of glory. The earth is his and the fullness thereof, and the cattle on a thousand hills are all his. You know that building we've been searching for as a church that we can't afford? and it doesn't seem to exist in this neighborhood, it's his. He owns it, and, he's gonna, he, and we're trusting him to reveal it to us. As a baby, Jesus frightened the king. As a child, he perplexed the elders. As a man, he made the sea be still, and boisterous waves now lie down upon the word of his gentle command. Sin could not reduce him. Satan could not tempt him. Sinners could not withstand him. Death could not destroy him. And come on, the grave couldn't hold him. He is a friend in loneliness. He is a strength in weakness. He is health in sickness. He is wholeness when we are wounded. He is the widow's pension. He is the prisoner's pardon. He is the exile's citizenship. And he is the orphan's adoption. The name of Jesus, Gardner C. Taylor says, it is an anthem in one word. It is an oratorio in two syllables. Jesus, Jesus. Gardner C. Taylor is not the only preacher who has something to say about Jesus. S.M. Lockridge said this about him. He said, well, he's enduringly strong. 
He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's impressive. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's strong and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate and he regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. Our king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. And he's the governor of the governors. He's the prince of princes, he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. His office is manifold, his promise is sure, his light is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough. His grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. He has always been, and he will always be. He had no predecessor. He'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You cannot impeach him, and he will not resign. So when Paul prayed that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, to have the spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of Christ, he was praying that we would see Jesus. And I pray that you see Jesus. I could go on and on quoting more and more and more about Jesus, but John chapter 21, the gospel writer says that we could say everything there was to say about Jesus and the world couldn't contain the books. And so my prayer for you and for me and for our church and for my kids and for my family and for my neighbors who never even heard Jesus' name, my prayer is that we would have eyes to see him. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story of the prophet Elisha. They're fighting a battle and they're outnumbered by this large army and one of Elisha's servants comes down and says, he's panicking. He says, Elisha, you're not going to believe this. What are we going to do? There's an army surrounding us and they're coming down on us. And Elisha looks at him, 2 Kings verse six, verse six, chapter 6, verse 16. He says, look, man, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant, he's like, uh, Elisha, no, we're outnumbered by a lot. And Elisha just lifts his eyes to heaven. And I wonder if Paul was thinking of this prayer when he prayed it for the Ephesians. But Elisha lifts his head to the heavens and he prays to God, O oh Lord, please open his eyes so that he can see. 
And the scriptures tell us that when that servant opens his eyes, he looks around and as far as he can see, horses and chariots of fire were coming down the mountain and were fighting for God's people. An army of angels fighting for the people of God. Elisha's servant, you see, he was panicking because he was seeing with with his eyes. But Elisha prayed that he would see with his heart. And when he saw what God was doing, he was able to rest in the victory that God provided. There's that old song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't make me sing alone. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That song sums up Paul's prayer perfectly. That as the Spirit gives sight to our hearts, we will see Jesus clearly, and the things of earth will begin to grow strangely dim, and we will be able to walk by faith and not by sight. Paul finishes his prayer, and he says, if your eyes are open to see Jesus, it will provide you three things. You will know the hope to which he has called you. You will know how valuable you are to God. And you will know the power that is at work within you through Christ. Isn't that what you want anyway? That's what we're all searching for. Hope, value, and power. Paul says that your eyes can see who Jesus really is. You would know that you already have those things in Christ. Church, let me pray for you. God, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus? Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. So that we may know the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance to us. And so that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, thank God, but in the age to come. Amen.